0: to Authority Issues, a podcast about leadership, management, and overclocking standing desk motors. I'm Rachel Perkins, aka Pi or Pi Bob. I'm into words, operations, cheese, and whiskey, and of course, leadership.
1: And I'm Kendall Miller. I can walk in a straight line and chew bubblegum at the same time. And I recently built a large netted metal object in my backyard. And we do this podcast every two weeks, Rachel. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> this week, also thanking ReactiveOps for sponsoring us once again. Cloud infrastructure is hard to get right and everyone's moving towards Kubernetes. ReactiveOps can help you get there, deploy faster, scale better, iterate and improve to get ahead of your competitors with great cloud infrastructure. Look them up at reactiveops.com.
0: Today on the show, we have Kathy Keating, CTO and founder at Apostrophe. Hi, Kathy. Hello. I hear you giggling there in the background.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Hello. Welcome
0: to the podcast. <laughs> Thank Talk you. a little bit about what Apostrophe does and what you do there.
2: Yeah, great. So, um, we're a startup in Denver, and we have the audacious goal of fixing healthcare in America. So, um, Whoa. I know this, 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 all this of is, healthcare. All of healthcare. (laughs) So we work with self-insured employers and our goal is to get like the waste and inefficiency out of their healthcare system and bring back simplicity, transparency, and love. So At the end of the day, we process your claims just like any other health plan would, but we do a lot very differently, especially how we pay differently, and it really helps us drive down costs and increase quality for members on the plans.
0: Well, that is certainly a a huge and worthy goal. (laughs) I'm, I'm appreciative of what you're doing already, and I barely know anything about it. So, great. Can you tell us a little bit about your path to leadership, to management, where you are now?
2: Sure, sure. So I have been in tech for more decades than I can even remember. My degree is in computer engineering, and I I actually worked in artificial intelligence for the first nine years of my career, back when nobody knew what artificial intelligence was. We were the ones writing the algorithms rather than just pulling them off the shelf and using them. At the time we built one of the mobile phones were just coming into existence and we built all the fraud detection that sat behind the mobile phones because they were super insecure at the time. And super (laughs) well now, even now. But like literally you could walk by someone on a street if they were on the phone and grab their credentials and start selling cloned versions of their phones. It was super insecure. And it's pretty cool that software actually covered about 80% of the mobile phones in the world early on uh, when mobile phones were first coming out and actually today HP still owns it it's called HP fraud management so it's pretty cool to know that software I wrote decades ago is still in production today
0: it's not like both cool and terrifying I know,
2: you know it was like oh my god <laughs> every once in a while they tell me they find my name in the comments and it's like scary um, I
1: hope nobody has changed the code at all
2: there, that was fun. <laughs> um, so so you know early on in my career or I started to into something that no one knew how to do and in a technology that, you know, No one even knew what it was, mobile technology at the time. So I feel like it really set me for my career going forward is to really tackle things that are super hard and, you know, kind of be willing to walk into the unknown and tackle something that no one knows how to solve, which is probably why I landed in healthcare today. In the middle, I've been at seven different startups. Most of them are, that code is still in existence today as well. Most of them have been acquired. It's like a whole new level of indispensable, really. It's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. Probably the biggest company I've been at from that when I started to now was at Monster. I ran a large part of the Monster engineering organization when Monster was in its heyday. Yeah. So uh, I've been in leadership at the tech level for probably half of my career. How did you get
0: into leadership from that the places are you, you were just probably just about to tell me that and I yeah.
2: sorry. <laughs> That's all right. I think I got to lead into leadership more by accident because I kept trying to solve the hard problems that no one wanted to take and so I took uh, I ended up taking like more of an architect level role and then there were other people that needed leadership or mentor and management during that time and they just kind of landed in my lap part of my team and then you know I just went from there it's like if you once you know how to solve or tackle the hard problems people want that kind of person in a leadership role my first big leadership role was at monster I ran actually seven different engineering teams at monster And then I went on to actually help found their product management organization at Monster because they didn't have one at the time. And so that was actually the first time I switched from engineering to product. And I've kind of been going back and forth between engineering leadership and product leadership or both ever since then.
1: Did you, your job after Monster, did you get it by way of Monster?
2: I know that. I, I did, actually. <laughs>
1: did you really? Oh, man. Oh, gosh. I thought it was going to be oh, Kendall. ridiculous. She had uh, you. That's you win this round. That was my that was plan, Kathy.
2: But I actually was. I actually moved across the country for that job, so that's when I moved to Colorado from Boston. So, wow.
1: <laughs> so how did you end up then at Apostrophe, or end up founding Apostrophe?
2: Well, that's a good story. So after... A few years after I moved here to Colorado, I realized I needed to get more into the Colorado tech community. So I actually started volunteering as a mentor for GoCode Colorado, which is a hackathon the Secretary of State's um, office puts on. And I ended up actually helping them run the entire mentorship program for four years. And one time I was mentoring and this woman showed up. She had just moved here from Silicon Valley and she wanted to meet some people and she was mentoring and we had the same shoes on i'm not joking <laughs> and we bonded right there
1: so this isn't like <laughs> she was walking in your footsteps this is like <laughs> you we're wearing the same brand uh this is not a parable candles. kendall i clearly it, know a lot of shoe brands
2: and a this very obscure fair. brand of shoes really Newton Running Shoes. So we ended up bonding over our shoes, and then we were pitch coaches that day together for the for the GoCode Colorado program. And from that, we just started getting to know each other. And in the meantime, she had gone through a program here in Denver called 10-10-10, where they take 10 previous CEOs that have had an ex from their company, and they sequester them for 10 days, and they challenge them with 10 wicked problems. And um, there's actually a definition for a wicked problem. It's something that's considered unsolvable. And so they sequester them for 10 days and they challenge them with these problems. And she had just come out of that program um, and wanted to tackle healthcare. And so wow. we actually spent about a year getting to know each other. I was working for another company and, and finally she said, Hey, I finally landed on my ID and I need a CTO. And that's where we are today.
1: Oh, that's awesome. And, I mean, healthcare is like, we, we have to dig for just a minute, yeah. maybe more than a minute, but healthcare is unsolvable, right? I mean, like, like the, it's just so deep. There's healthcare costs are high because we'll sue people, so they have to buy obscene insurance. So, you know, and, and pharmaceutical companies own insurance companies, own drug companies. And I mean, it's just so intermixed and complicated and... Give me some hope, Kathy.
2: I'm going to give you some hope. So um, actually, I have never worked in healthcare. So that actually helps me see healthcare in a different light. I think uh, a lot of people that work in the industry are so stuck in the way the industry has already always worked that they can't see out of that bubble, right? So I come to it with fresh eyes from different industries myself. And I got to say, it's probably one of the most broken industries I've seen. There are people all through the supply chain that need to take their cut of everything, every single cost. And if you can just raise your rates and people will pay them, why would you ever learn how to build an efficient organization? So a lot of these companies out there that are, quote, taking their cut, you know, are just taking more and more money and not really looking at how they can use technology to make their particular facility more efficient.
0: It's not sounding very hopeful. Yeah. Kindle asked for hope here. <laughs>
2: She's there. So, okay, so, okay. so let me give you an example. So like some people are actually, you know, doing really smart things. So uh, let me use an example. Like one thing we might do is, so our goal at Apostrophe is to save money while still delivering at or above the quality of care that you would get in a normal insurance organization or health plan organization. So one thing that we might do is actually instead of encouraging you to go to your local hospital to, let's say, get a back surgery, say the doctor you're going to do it with does that surgery twice a month maybe, right? And so he's not very efficient. That doctor was not very efficient at what they do. And, and of course, the facility isn't very efficient if they only do that surgery, let's say one or tw- twice or three times a month. But if I, we can direct you to a surgery center where that doctor does that surgery four or five times a day, he's much more efficient at what he's doing. And the whole facility is more efficient. And so those costs can be dramatically less. And in fact, we see some knee back surgeries can be anywhere from 50 to 80% cheaper at a surgery center than let's say a traditional hospital approach and um quality is higher so okay so if if the doctors you know delivering higher quality you're going to have better outcomes and the cost is so much lower just imagine how everyone wins in that um, equation and part of what apostrophe does differently than most of the other companies is that we um uh, we take a, a percent of the savings that we we save, rather than a percent of the claim. So we're incented to um, to, to make those savings happen while still maintaining quality. So I mean, it's it's things like that that, like, if, if 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 you can just start to direct care to the people that are working efficiently and doing the right things and 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 acting ethically, I guess you could say, you know, that's how we change. That's how we change healthcare. Is but you know, one patient at a time. And really focusing on the people that have the highest costs.
1: As a business person, my immediate reaction is you take a percentage of what they save. Well, if you start to actually impact healthcare and prices go down, the revenue that you generate will be smaller and smaller as that percentage gets smaller.
2: You know, we are a B Corp. We're working for the social good. We want to fix healthcare in America. and if We can do that. You know more power to it. Right.
1: I mean, it's, it's a really cool cause. And I like, I like the idea and I am also very encouraged that you really believe in this. And, mm. uh, as a result, you know, if, if you were on the phone, not, not sure this was going to happen, uh, <laughs> that would be, that would be a lot scarier, but that, that you have a model that seems to be working is, is yep. uh,
2: absolutely awesome. go big or go home. Right.
1: <laughs> right? Sure. And,
0: and kind of along those lines, uh, so you've, you know, you've, you've had a, a long path, a varied path, starting in technology and, and that sort of uh, stuff to get to where you are now. What has been the hardest or most embarrassing lesson you've had to learn along the
2: way? Ooh, you know, to be honest, the hardest lesson I've had to learn along the way, especially as a yeah. woman in tech leadership, is how to stand my ground and say what I believe in and tell my truth. And yeah. if leadership doesn't like that, then... Yeah. You know, if leadership doesn't want to listen, then maybe I shouldn't be there, you know, to really recognize my value and what I have to give. You and To know, walk
0: if you're not appreciated.
2: To walk if I'm not appreciated. And, you know, I've got so much to give. I've got so much great background of solving really hard problems. And, you know, if I can bring that to people who really care and want to do it, then I'm going to do it. And I'd say that's probably part of why I founded, um, co-founded Apostrophe. It really, it really was about, like, Hey, I can do this. I don't care what you have to say. I can make this happen, and you know, I can I can be a part of building something amazing. You know, and there's a point in our career in which we're like, we want to make that happen, not make it happen for somebody else.
0: Mm-hmm. So you, you're a lot of your personal I wouldn't say self worth, but a lot of how you view yourself as being valuable and productive is probably now caught up in making this successful, which is you know great for everybody. But boy, that's kind lot of stress how do you deal with that I mean do you feel stress about it and how do you deal with that
2: I I used to feel stress when I was trying to come to terms with that um at this point I'm just like whatever you know I am who I am I've got this great thing to give and if you don't want to be part of that you know go somewhere else you know it's this whole I don't really care go somewhere else you know,
1: well, and and you've seen success from it. I mean, oh, your industry totally. is humming along in a in a profound way, and you're. I mean, my understanding. So, so in full disclosure, I know Kathy from the local market in Denver, uh, and I've had conversations with her. But uh, so I know some of what's going on, and that you have customers, and that you are growing, and there's there's reason to be optimistic that this is going to continue to keep working.
2: Absolutely. You know, I think. If you're going to tackle something that's audacious and, and, and incredibly hard, like you have to have that same mentality is like, you know, again, go big or go home and, and you can't care about the little stuff, you know, sure. Life is stressful, but you know, the truth is the more of the stress is about, you know, scaling quickly and not never, you know, a startup never has enough people to scale as fast as they yeah. need to, And yeah. so the stress really is more about that. Than it is about you know who I am or what I'm doing. Okay, think I'm beyond that question.
0: <laughs> so you advance to a higher plane. <laughs> um, all right, well, tell us about the higher plane level of issues. What's the <laughs> issue you're dealing with or thinking about right now?
2: Yeah, so I I think the biggest you know challenges I'm facing right now is just how um, archaic a lot of the healthcare system is. Um, you know, data is still data is still being Transferred in fixed formats, it's um, sent through FTP servers, you know. And of course, you have to keep data so secure, you know, with all the HIPAA rules. And uh, and yet the industry hasn't, you know, is trying but hasn't really picked up with that. You know, they're not using the newest technologies. They're not, you know, um, working in a way that makes it much easier to be able to secure and transfer all that data. And there's a massive amount of data in healthcare, and it's super complex. And just really how do you make sense of that data? How do you clean that data? How do you um, ensure it's accurate? And then how do you start to make sense of how you can leverage that data to drive better outcomes?
0: And are so. you having are you having to convince people? Um, like, where's the leadership aspect of this uh, difficulty? Is it like people are like, this is the way we've always done it, and you have to just, you know, suck it up and deal? Or is it is it uh, like a showing them what the future looks like? How do you you know how do you approach this situation?
2: Well, I think it's a little of both, right? So there's like showing the industry what could be. Um, at least from Apostrophe's perspective, you know, how we treat the data, how we run our processes, um, how we interact with members and employers and providers, you know, we can leverage all the technology that we want to in that way. But at the end of the day, we still have to work in the whole ecosystem of an industry that isn't operating that way. And so we have to tailor our tech to their tech. And, you know, we can't come in and just say, oh, you, you know, big pharmacy company over here. You can't, you need to change to match us, you know, for us, we're the little guy. And so we have to, we have to fit into their model. And so, you know, that's always, that's always a challenge, you know, mm-hmm. here, let me, let me fit, you know, 2018 into a 1995 model, you know. So. Yeah, that's rough. <laughs> uh. <laughs> have you, have I think, you I think a lot of tech. I, I think a lot of tech companies forget that, like you know, they they do work in an ecosystem, right? And so, hey, you know, use these great APIs. Well, what's an API? It's something like <laughs> hear every day, you know. So mm-hmm. anyway, you had a question. What was it?
0: Oh, I just uh, have you really experienced a lot of pushback from folks who are like, I, you know, I don't, I don't live in twenty eighteen.
2: <laughs> Um, not really, because we're able to pick the vendors that we want to work with, at least on the outbound side. And so on the inbound side, it's, it really is just data. And if your data is bad, it's still just a file of data and we can cleanse it and manipulate it. And and so, you know, the inbound side, yes, it's the tech is really old, but on the outbound side, we can pick the vendors that really work for us. Okay.
1: And um, what's, what's unique to, you know recruiting and leading a team particularly in this healthcare space are, are there are there people who really want to be a part of changing healthcare and are excited to come work with you as a result of that and and conversely are there people who are interested until they hear your vision and then just go no way you can't you can't change something that big and then walk away like, like what, what is it like recruiting and and then Maybe even working with people in that field, are, are, they, are they unusually passionate? Does it not necessarily seem to make a difference? Or do people just see it as another tech company or do they see it as being a part of, this is like a 16-part question. I'm going to keep going. That's actually... Um, <laughs> I think I asked three questions there. So yeah, like what's what's the recruiting like, and then maybe what's retention like, and then maybe what's the attitude? Right.
2: Right. So you know, with us being such a mission-driven company, you know, being having those audacious goals to fix healthcare, I think just that attitude that we have really sets us up for when candidates come in, for them to be, for us to be able to tell really quickly whether they're aligned to that mission or not, um, and and to tackle something this big we have to be hiring people that are aligned to that mission um, because it's hard you know and so you know and we're still still small you know I can't even afford uh to post a job right (laughs) on a big recruiting site or get a recruiter and so I have to be able to reach candidates potential candidates in a way that you know has them want to come work for this tiny little startup in in Denver versus, you know, all the people who are willing to throw money at them. Right. So, you know, you do have to be mission driven. You know, I do a lot of my recruiting just through tweeting um, or reaching out to my network and somebody knows somebody and, you know, there'll be a point in which that is not um, so possible as we grow, but but, um, for now, pretty much everyone that works here has been hired through that network and so yeah
1: into it and they're excited about it they
2: buy into it and they're excited about it and i gotta tell you i know almost everybody's health issues from investors (laughs) to to, from investors all the way down to candidates somebody's got a health story right it's either their story or it's someone in their family's story and so um, it's like TMI, too much information, right? Right,
0: but like an unexpected benefit <laughs> or a drawback. <laughs> like
2: you, but, wild everybody. <laughs> but it, you know, what's interesting is it's something that everybody can relate to. Like everyone needs healthcare at some point in their life, and they can relate to it. And so they can understand how they can make an impact on that. I think that the biggest pushback we get, Kendall, is is really – you know, oh, that's not possible or whatever it might come from like people who are really entrenched in how, um, how the industry already works today, like investors who invest in healthcare or, or, you know, the big healthcare companies, you know, they're really looking at it as like, no, this is how it is and this is it. And, you know, rather than looking at it like, hey, wow, you know, you are totally innovative. You're doing so much different and hey, this might work.
1: You know and so so then, when you do find these people who really buy in, uh, which is just like even more encouraging right like i I just love that you're tackling something huge, I love that you're finding people that are <laughs> willing to tackle something huge <laughs> with you, and I love that it's it's working uh, but you you find these people they buy in is leading them. I mean, I would imagine it's easier than than leading a group of people who are really there because it's an interesting paycheck or an interesting company. Or you know, I, I, there's a part of me that really wonders how many people work for Google because they're passionate about gathering all of the world's information. You know, like I don't, I, I, I just suspect people work at Google because it's Google. It's a big name. Maybe they have good food. You know, so so is it different? Uh, apologies to listeners who work at Google. Place uh, to work, I'm sure. No, but uh, but like, is it is it a different leadership? thing entirely because these people just buy in and so they, they're they're passionate about it or, or does it not make much of a difference?
2: I think they're bought in because they're passionate about it but I also think you know we as leaders of the company we keep that those audacious goals present you know our values are you know super present in the company at all times you know we talk about simplicity, transparency, and love like at least once a day, somewhere in this building. So it's really about keeping the candidates, I mean, keeping the employees really like that, why we're doing what we're doing, top of mind, so that they're always connected to that, I think. But that's a quality of a good leader anywhere, is of, you know, really keeping people connected to why we're doing what we're doing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I, I-, I buy all of that, but it's still... <laughs> It's it's, it's just, I just think it's a really cool. I
2: don't
1: know. I'm I'm excited about it. Maybe
2: it may, maybe it makes it a little easier because they're connected to the, to the vision. So versus chasing the money or the food or whatever it is. Okay.
0: Okay, So I want to change gears a little bit here. Um, and talk a, a bit more about you personally, uh, if that's okay.
2: Sure, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> uh, I
0: wanted to know a little? You've you you've been in a like top of the top of the org chart leadership position a bunch of times. Um, what is your relationship with authority like? How, how do you feel about having authority over other people, and how do you feel about people who, who may have authority over you?
2: Yeah, uh, good, great question. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's a doozy, I know.
2: <laughs> so I'll take the first one first, which is like me quote having authority over the other people. I I really feel as a as a leader, it's my job to you know support my team, right? So rather than having authority and pulling them a direction, it's me behind them, giving them what they need to be successful. And you know, I I was lucky to have early on in my career some great role models to. Um, who led from that perspective. And so I think I've just always been that person that says, what do you need to grow? What do you need to thrive in this position? And, and how can I help you do that? Um, I hope that I do a good job at it. I've had several people follow me from job to job. So that to me is like the one indicator that, hey, maybe that's a good, <laughs> that's some validation. Um, so, that's
1: significant validation. <laughs> there's, there's no that's that's a very big deal.
2: Uh, um, I have one one person here that has, this is her fifth time that her and I have worked together. So whoa, um, <laughs> that seems more like you but know she, she night holds night the night. record. <laughs> 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 She's like, "Where are we going next?" You know, and this I'm like, "Yeah, hey, I'm starting business. this company." <laughs> um, so, you know, from that perspective, it's like really, you know, pushing my team to be successful and really building a collaborative, a strong collaborative environment, while also saying, hey, here's what we're doing and here's how we're doing it. Um, so bringing that, I guess, authority with love. Um, to really say, hey, we're all in this together, and I'm learning along with you, and and where are we going, and why are we going there, so. So You're
0: much more comfortable with the, like, setting the, setting the, the vibe in place, and, and moving everyone along together. You're more comfortable with that approach than some other, there there are approaches where you lead from the front kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay,
2: cool. And, and, and I guess what's interesting is um, when I'm, when I have a thought, when I'm, answering to authority above me it's interesting how i um i get annoyed when someone leading me isn't that way i i have this one um ceo that i used to work for several years ago um he 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 literally said to me almost every week i don't care what you have to say just do what i tell you to do and and literally literally what what a great leader i know (laughs) wow (laughs) And, 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 and like, I don't, I don't do good with that kind of authority. Um, You know, it's, it's like, I don't find it productive. You know, I feel like, you know, the people who work for us, they have ideas and, and we should be listening to them and uh, we should all input our ideas because we need to pick the best idea possible to move us forward the most productively. And, and the only way to get that is to listen and um, you know, when you're telling me, I don't care what you have to say; just do what I tell you to do. Anyway, that means you're not listening. And and I think that was the pivotal moment working for that particular CEO when I realized my own worth—that um, I did have something valuable, while. that yeah. I did have something valuable to say. And you know, damn it, you should be listening to me. And and you know, that played out exactly like I expected. Um, and you know, he was blindsided because he wasn't listening. And, yeah. and so, and so, I do have problems in that regard with that kind of authority, and and it's probably why I founded my own company because now I have more um, opportunity to pick, you know, who we're in relationship with. Yeah, yeah there are always, it is a relationship. yeah, totally, and there are always people that have authority over you. You know, your investors, and obviously your stakeholders. Um, you report to them when you're leading a company, but. Um, You know, you have more opportunity as a founder to be able to pick that path. Mm
0: -hmm. And do you, you kind of touched on this a little bit in your answer to my epic question before, but um, do you have a different relationship with authority than you did when you were a kid, when you, you know, were like having to do what your parents said or whatever?
2: It's really interesting. So my mom says I actually didn't talk to anyone outside of the family until I was in fourth grade. Whoa. Um, and I, when I test, like do the Myers Briggs test, I test a hundred percent introverted. I, I was expecting Kendall to laugh there. Yeah, because-
1: that that does surprise me. I, I mean, I know you well I- enough to. That surprises me. Uh, I I, I don't know that it's burst into laughter, but that's that's still, you're you're still that way?
2: I am still that way. If I take Myers-Briggs today, I will test 100% um, introvert. And Mm -hmm. I feel like, so that when I think about like how it's informed who I am, it's like I've changed a lot because I, in order to deliver on like my purpose in the world, I had to be able to engage in the world, right? Despite my you know uh, introverted
0: introversion (laughs)
2: yeah and so you know I've I I guess I've developed this way to like have meaningful conversations because an introvert like will stay engaged if there's meaningful conversation um, versus just idle chit chat is like the worst thing for us. Totally. And um, so maybe I've just figured out how to have meaningful conversations. If you I, I make your know.
0: life about something incredibly meaningful like this, then yeah, every conversation you have about your work is meaningful. That's yeah. brilliant.
2: Yeah. So that's how that's how I that's how I tackle that. And so um, yeah, I guess I guess I feel like I am a different person today. And and of course, as I gained more confidence in who I was and what I had to deliver to the world you know, I felt like that became easier. You know, I will say anything to anyone if I think it's what needs to be said to Kendall probably knows that too. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. Challenge that.
1: <laughs> totally. <laughs> uh-huh. Wow. Uh-oh, okay. Well, that's, I mean, I- I'm, I'm struggling to picture you as a child, uh,
2: not talking
1: to anyone <laughs> well yeah I mean I, I, you know I, I do see you at social events, and uh you're not standing in the corner freaked out by any means uh, so that's 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 interesting um, well one one question okay. that uh I like to ask is is related to you know you've been in leadership for a long time and significant leadership for a long time, and I, I'm curious from your perspective what what separates a junior leader from a senior leader is what's what are the things that really make in your mind, maybe even a C-level executive, what, what would you consider, you know, somebody, somebody's been a manager for five years, when would you consider them C-level or C-level worthy and, uh, you know, those kinds of things?
2: Yeah. So a few things I see in junior leaderships is more of a, a tentativeness to tackle hard problems that are outside of their area of expertise um so I see a lot of this this is my team this is what we're doing I'm making decisions for my team and and um as you as you grow as a leader you start to realize that you know our job is to make our company successful not just our team successful and so when I see leaders moving up into the C level, it's the ones who are 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 running their teams from this perspective of how the company is successful and and how can they make that most, um, you know, optimize what you deliver the value to the customer and and so you know thinking outside of, thinking outside of ourselves and and being bringing more of that selflessness. Uh, and maybe it's not always self in this list. Sometimes it's capitalism, but. uh, <laughs> but, <What>? uh <laughs> but, but that, like, looking outside of ourselves and moving away from, like, protecting our team to actually supporting our teams. Oh, and that is huge. Drive, so.
0: So, yeah, that is a difference I'd like to explore because I remember when I made that transition and and I hadn't really thought about it that clearly where you go from, this is my team and they are mine and I have to take care of them. And that's, these are all great things to know when you're, you know, it's not, that's not level zero management, understanding that you are responsible for their benefit, like making them productive. It's not about you. So that's like step level two or three, I guess. But then going from, all, my entire job is to protect and feed and care for this team to this team is part of a larger organism is a big deal. And I, yeah. I definitely think that's part of the set of skills or tendencies that raises a junior leader to a senior one.
2: Mm. So I, see that's it, super interesting. I see it most often when it comes to change right so junior leaders are often like I'm protecting my team from change you know mm-hmm. you know everything can go in chaos around the organization but my team I'm going to keep you know I'm going to try to keep things static for them and and I feel like that's one of the worst things we can do as a leader like I will often change things on my team all the time so that they can <laughs> desensitize themselves to change right because um that's life life will be changing your day in the barrel and and the faster we can adapt to change the faster we can be more successful at what we do the faster we can learn from our failures and and um and so like i, I have often come into teams that felt protected and literally like every few weeks change 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 until you know all of a sudden we're like where are we changing next you know um, it's it's build that desensitization
0: I can imagine some folks feeling really, uh, feeling really kind of cranky about that. But then I guess you, you know, that's the kind of team you want to run, and so those folks need to either adapt or, you know, move to a more stable team in that sense.
2: Well, and, and I think the crankiness comes from like um, fear of the unknown, right? And so if we can, if we can change our relationship from one of fear to one of like exploration and experimentation, you know. Uh, Change is going to happen anyway, so we can either be afraid of it or we can embrace it, right? And so, you know, maybe that crankiness is just them learning how to grow in their own careers to be more successful and more broaden their capabilities.
0: And also maybe they have experienced failure and not had a good experience with it, right? I mean, failure Correct. is not a great thing to experience most of the time, but if you're afraid to change because when you change something, you might fail. And when you've done that in the past, people have been really terrible to you. Yeah, uh, That's like the other half of encouraging change in your team or, or, or teaching them to weather change and to try new things is to make sure they understand that they're not going to be penalized for trying something and failing at it.
2: Absolutely. Like those
0: expectations are set clearly. So yeah. Absolutely. That can can also reduce the the crankiness (laughs) or nervousness. Exactly. Just
1: just comfort and volatility. I definitely I definitely agree is a significant sign of seniority and leadership. Right. Um, because it 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 the higher up you go, the less uh, umbrellas there are protecting you from the volatility. And, oh,
2: totally. We're
1: uh, seeing it and have to deal with it and have to deal with the consequences of it and maybe communicate it in a way that doesn't seem like it's entirely volatile. Right. Um, exactly. Totally. But that's interesting.
0: So, how has becoming a leader? I mean, you've been a leader for a long time, so uh, maybe it's continuing to affect your personal life. But has it affected your personal life? And if so, do you think it's positive or negative or both or
2: <laughs> i'm sure my husband wishes i was home more <laughs> <laughs> whatever dude <laughs> or, or when home i wasn't working the whole time mm-hmm. but uh, you know it's great he he's a musician on the side and you know he has his own uh things he goes out and does and he's so supportive of me i really appreciate that oh, um and, uh, you know, I, I made a decision a long time ago to not have children. And so, you know, my cats don't care about me. Uh, Good that <laughs> so you understand that about your cats. Not a really problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think the biggest challenge I run into is just like, um, especially when founding a company, there's not a lot of your own time. Um, it typically goes to what is needed to, to run the company and grow the company. And so probably, you know, my one challenge is just making sure I have time for me, you know. Um, you know, I have an art studio in my house that I have not been in in several weeks. Um, and I start to miss that, you know. And so uh, how do I get back into that rhythm of, you know, making sure I take care of me so that I can take care of, you know, the company around me. So.
1: And your cats don't make that time for you?
2: No, no, not at it's, all.
1: That's something you have to... <laughs> The first rule of cat ownership is knowing that the cats don't care.
2: Care uh. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> okay, that's that's pretty amusing. What, what and so talk talk a little bit more about that. Your. You, outside of work which it sounds like there isn't a whole lot of time outside of work because work is kind of life in the founder startup lifestyle until you get huge enough you can sit on a yacht and uh do work from there right oh Um, that would be fun (laughs) so 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 what are i mean what are the hobbies that are the outside of work hobbies and the art you mentioned art are you uh you know painting canvas or are you cutting out flannel and gluing it to a flannel board what's
2: what's oh yeah so i i um learned to sew when i was eight years old my mom made me sew all of my clothes um i could buy jeans and that was it everything else i had to make um and so uh my art is actually similar to a quilt it's made from fabric, but it actually looks like a painting. Um, wow. So I take digital photography, I manipulate it in Photoshop, and then I print at large scale. So most of my pieces are about maybe five foot by three foot. Uh, print them on fabric and then quilt it like a quilt. Um, but you know they're they, they're more like photographs than than uh, they don't look like a quilt at all. I'll embellish it, paint, you know, fiber, all sorts of things. Then I stretch it on a frame. So it it does look like a picture. That sounds amazing. If you stood 15 feet, 10 feet away from it, you'd think it was a painting. Um, And I've been in several gallery shows throughout, you know, my life when I have time to do a piece. I typically do like one or two pieces a year because they take hundreds of hours to do. Um, And, yeah, so...
0: Wow. And so this is a question that Kendall often asks, but um, I'm going to ask it because uh, I'm hoping it's related to this. If, if money were no object, uh, what would you do with your life? Would you uh, change what you're doing right now? Would you spend a lot more time in that studio working on your art?
2: Um, I would spend time working on my art, but I also love just really helping other people. Um, I do a lot of mentorship for people and love just getting out and, and seeing other people thrive. So, you know, maybe I would combine those two um, you know, where I teach other people to do the kind of art I do. Um, you know, who knows, but being out with people, helping other people and, and, you know, being creative, being creative is huge to me. I'd love to learn how to, to design clothes. I'm not really good. I'm good at following a pattern, but I'd love to be able to design clothes.
0: Like do pattern making on your own.
2: Yeah, that would be fun. But that, you know, takes training. So,
0: well, you know it's a hard problem, and you don't know how to solve any of those.
1: No, so, not at all.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, uh, on the subject of your art, and I need to know the answer to this question so I can go looking at your art. Where can people find you on the internet, both your your professional life and your art life?
2: Oh boy, I don't even know where you can find my art on the internet these days. Uh, you can find me on the internet on Twitter, most likely at Cath Keating, Cath um, with a K. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. If you can find me on Facebook, which might be a little hard, um, and Kathy Keating on Facebook, um, a bunch of my art is on my Facebook page as well.
0: All right. I'll take a look. Cool. Well, this has been great. Uh, Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for having
2: me.
1: Yeah, thank you, Kathy. This was fun. And uh, have a good week.
2: You too. Take care.